All right, coming up this hour, we're talking social media, politics, a little Venus, and then we're joined by Pastor Ryan Nunez. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and tonight is debate night. On a scale of 1 to 10, Brian, how excited slash terrified are you? So some people are going to lose respect for me here. Uh, The New York Giants are on Thursday Night Football tonight. And so I see that where this is, is going. Yeah, that is the train wreck that I'll be watching tonight. Not the debate. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, that, Giants, was, that was catchy. The Giants team. I'm sure I'll have Twitter on in the background. I, I am interested to see, but it is kind of like watching a train wreck, like an accident. Like you can't look away, but I will be very focused on the Giants game tonight, but I'll probably be following the debate on Twitter. Do you think you'll watch the whole thing tonight? Uh, no, it's my son's birthday and we're going to try and, uh, oh, nice. I mean, again, he's, he's three, but I wish I would have filmed the entire morning experience because I, I mean, this is probably old news for you, Brian, but like when you throw a party for a one-year-old, the party's not for the kid. It's for the parents, oh. right? It's two. Right. They're like sort of able to kind of piece together what's going on this morning was like my favorite day of this year so far. Like it, he, we had some balloons and I don't know. I'm getting mushy early in the show, but like he, we got him some gorilla pajamas because he's just obsessed with gorillas <laughs> and he's just running around like beating his chest like a gorilla and he's dancing. <laughs> like it was the best way to start the day today. It was like so full of joy. So three year olds kind of have an idea what's going on yeah. and it's yeah, it's it's been lovely. So yeah, I'll probably pay attention like you said via twitter or something but probably probably not much more than that but who who knows maybe i'll be uh i'll be up for some punishment later today um i did want to begin kind of feel that way it does does kind of feel that way like well i really want to make my night uncomfortable i'll watch the debate (laughs) that's right i could sleep on a bed of nails or i could watch the debate um i wanted to for that reason begin with uh some good news i got got three headlines here that we're gonna sort of rifle through i picked a little less than what we normally do so we'll have a a little bit more time to kind of weigh in on them. But this first one from uh, Mm. Christian Headlines, I don't know if you saw this one, Church donates over a million dollars in surplus ties to help those affected by COVID-19. What is going on here? Yeah, it's a crazy story. Alfred Street Baptist Church, a predominantly black church in Alexandria, Virginia, has donated more than $1 million to various organizations, it says, to help those affected by the coronavirus since the start of the pandemic. The money came from excess tithes. Uh, That's such a hard word to say all the time, tithes, that the church (laughs) didn't need to run. It was part of an initiative called Tithe the Tithe. So according to a press release from the church, Alfred Street Baptist Church has donated uh, $1,079,287 to 69 community-based and national organizations to support COVID-19 relief. The press release further goes on to name some of the organizations like Children's National Hospital, Unity Healthcare, DC Rape Crisis Center, and others. The initiative started on Easter Sunday when the head pastor uh, announced that 10% of all money tithed to the church would go towards organizations to help the community. He said, I believe that the black church has the opportunity and the obligation to reach into segments of our community that are always overlooked by the government. And so it goes on to say, but a just doing a program like that, you and I are pastors. We know that it's always nice to give away money, but it's just as hard as it is to give away your own money. It can be that hard to give away the church's money, right? When you work there and this, mm-hmm. and the giveaway over a million dollars and to make this an initiative says so much about that church, yeah. that pastor, the people who make up that church. Like it is 
Uh, it is such an encouraging story and also a challenging story as pastors to go, okay, like these kind of uh, look who is able to be done when you kind of set big, generous visions like this. Especially during a pandemic. I feel like yes. the vast majority of conversations I'm having with other pastors are a lot more somber. Like, poof, you know, how's next year's budget looking for you guys? What's the plan? And right. for them to, I mean, even just the phrase surplus budget or surplus tithe, you're like, <laughs> that's, I don't know, to me, Oxymoron. <laughs> I just have so many thoughts and I wanted to begin with, uh, yeah, just an encouraging story of, of a church yeah, doing cool. some, something pretty wonderful in sort of weird news. I don't really have a reason for including this It's from Forbes and it says Venus is dead. What what happened to Venus, Brian? <laughs> I, you know, the science stuff gets me sometimes, but it says uh, new analysis shows phosphine, a possible biosignature is absent. So what row? I didn't know this was a big surprise, but the article starts in one of the biggest surprises in the history of planetary science. Right. <laughs> a September 2020 study announced the presence of phosphine gas in Venus's cloud decks, a tantalizing hint that could be due to biological present processes. So they're going, well, there's stuff there that uh, that's showing uh, that there's life, that there's stuff going on and says, so is it life? Maybe. But that's assuming phosphine is actually present. And a new study has just been submitted that calls the entire detection into doubt. Here's what it means and why the evidence that Venus might be anything other than a completely dead hellish planet might have just evaporated entirely. And it goes on to explain some of this phosphine thing. But there was all this excitement with this phosphine that Venus is alive. Like maybe there's there's life there. There's whatever. And now this follow-up study seems to say, nope, not true. It is what it thought we thought it is. And Venus, as you said, is dead. I, I don't know that we've ever done a story like that. It just <laughs> I just stumbled upon it as a lot. Well, yeah, let's include that. There's probably I hope I hope one person listening is like, finally, some Venus news. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, I've Brian and Ian. For, I've, I've been waiting for those planetary stories. Come on, people. <laughs> you and I like have we barely know what's going on like in our oh own world, let alone either way. Okay, so in light of uh, the debate tonight, which we talked about earlier, we'll now have a mute option, which I think is fascinating. This last article out of Christian Post says poll White evangelicals are outliers on nearly every issue of concern to voters. You know what? I'm going to let you go ahead and take this one. Okay. A new poll finds that white evangelicals, parenthetically, an important voting block in American politics, are outliers, uh, as you said, on nearly every issue of concern. The Public Religion Research Institute's 11th Annual American Values Survey uh, was released just the other day. Respondents were broken down by political party as well as religious affiliation. So you had white evangelical Protestants, white mainline Protestants, black Protestants, Hispanic, and so on and so forth. Among uh, the survey asked respondents what they saw as the top three critical issues facing the country. Coronavirus was in the top three issues of concern for all religious groups except for white evangelicals. Hmm. Among that group, 63% of respondents cited abortion as their most critical issue, followed by the fairness of presidential elections, 62%, and terrorism, 57%. Only 35% of white evangelical Protestants see coronavirus as a critical issue. And, and so it goes on to list these other ones, but basically with each issue they show, uh, as I said, white evangelicals tend to be an outlier from everybody else. And, and there's 
I'm sure there's going to be really smart sociologists and, and other people doing studies on this kind of stuff. Like, why is this? But the coronavirus one is especially interesting uh, because most of the coronavirus stats say that deaths and serious illness to coronavirus have tended to be in the minority communities much more than in white communities for various reasons. So maybe that starts to explain it. But it's just interesting, again, to see it in data that the white evangelicals uh, are just different than all other uh, religious and ethnic uh, affiliations here. And I, I would love to know maybe at a different time why you think this is, because later in the article it says white evangelical Protestants are the only group that believes the country is moving in the right direction with 59% mm. of respondents expressing confidence about the current trajectory of the U.S. That's an interesting. In, that's an interesting statement with, I mean, like you alluded to, all sorts of layers underneath that. Uh, right. What is very strange, and again, I, I realize we're all out of time here, is that um, I imagine I imagine there's all sorts of disagreements even with the findings, right? I, I realize that you know statistics aren't always as black and white as we make them out to be, but either way, I wanted to include that up top, especially on the day of the debate, just to kind of get people's feelings about that. This is up at our Facebook page. I'd love to know, is this true to your experience? Are you finding this to be true in the conversations and sphere of influence that you find yourself in, or do you disagree entirely and why? Uh, like always, this is up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, and we would love to hear from you. Coming up next, uh, Pastor Ryan Nunez, who just wrote a new book uh, called The Great Challenge, is going to join us for two segments here on The Common Good. That's coming up next on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we are thrilled to have not just for one, but for two segments, Ryan Nunez. Welcome to the show, sir. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Ryan. I'm a, a pastor at a uh, evangelical church in the far west valley of Phoenix, Arizona. It is right now. It is almost a hundred degrees today, but uh, we are coming into fall. I'm pulling out my flannels and all that stuff because it's going to be down <laughs> in the lower nineties. Uh, wow wow <laughs> congratulations yeah. yes but it's all relative right it's, it's relative so yeah. it was in the 110s lower 90s feels like fall to us here yeah. <laughs> take a picture of the trees right yeah uh, exactly so, our, our our leaves fall in like mid-january is what <laughs> wow. that's awesome uh so ryan i i was just kind of reading over your background a little bit and i just found it interesting that you're at a church called, I believe, Palm Valley Church, but you just kind of attended and were in leadership, and now is uh, you're the lead pastor there. I'm curious, uh, just of that journey, and is it is it weird at all to become the lead pastor of a church that you've been a part of already? Yeah, a little bit, especially when I stop and think about it. But it, it's been so busy, I haven't really thought about it during the, the pathway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I grew up in, in the church. My grandfather was a pastor. My father was a pastor, uh, and I was not going to be a pastor. I was going to be a scientist. I went to Arizona State, got my PhD in material physics, and uh, was on that pathway, heading that direction. But I had come to Palm Valley Church as as it was launching. My, my youth pastor planted the church as, as a new work. So my wife and I came along to, to help get it going. And over the course of several years, God uh, worked in my heart and called me into ministry and began serving there in, in a volunteer role and then um, in different administ- uh, like uh, associate pastor roles. And then our, our founding pastor became ill um, back in 2011, diagnosed with a terminal illness. And wow. just to make a long story short, made a transition there 
where I was kind of the, the executive pastor leading ministries into the lead pastor. And I've been doing that for, for almost six years now. Wow. Well, Ryan, I'm sure most people know that like pastors who are into material physics are a dime a dozen. That's pretty much <laughs> t- tale as old as time. But I, yeah, I, I would love to know though, like what, what was that shift like in your mind to be interested in something like material physics to then dedicate your life to the local church? Like, are there, are there parallels that maybe Brian and I like wouldn't think of, or was no. that like a complete 180 in your mind just to adjust to this new, this new reality of yours? There were no parallels. I <laughs> nothing useful from it. From my, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so I, I think one of the differences, it wasn't a, I was a material physicist, got converted and then became a pastor. I was a follower of Christ before I studied, you know, science or anything like that. So I walked into the scientific field with a perspective that mm. this is God's incredible universe. He's created with design and structure. And I mean, not to sound cheesy, but I, I really saw the study of science as, as natural theology. Mm. Um, so I, I believe that God was just going to use me in that field. And it was over the course of some conversations, some opportunities that, that God called me out of that into a, a more vocational, traditional role. Uh, and I think the one thing I learned how to do through, you know, through science, I, I learned how to study. I learned how to take apart problems, um, all things that, that we use in ministry each and every day. And I've, I've had to backfill some of the, the seminary and things like that. But um, the way that God taught me how to think about problems, I think, is a unique perspective. Yeah. And then I do a killer faith in science seminar once a year. That's pretty much <laughs> I'm <it>. sure <laughs> of it. Oh, that's funny. Uh you, it says here, too, that you're a third-generation pastor. Well, just curious, growing up around other pastors, uh, did that make you – did that draw you to the pastorate? Or was that kind of like, I'm not going to do that? You know, my my dad, my granddad were, were pastors. I'm not going to get into the, the family business, if you will. Yeah, you know, they were pastors in, um, in works that were really difficult. So uh, my grandfather, uh, uh, Nunez, my last name, I really am Hispanic, so you might not – you know, if you saw if you saw me in person, you'd be like, oh, no, he's not. But but I really am. My, my father, grandfather is from southern uh, Arizona, migrant worker uh, and planted churches in migrant camps as they traveled, you know, with the harvest. So that was that's not easy pastoral work there. Um, my father was always an associate pastor. So I, I saw kind of the, the the tough work of pastoring and never really I wasn't against it. Like it was an intention like, no, I don't want to do that. But I was just kind of good at science and math, and that's what I got a scholarship for. So went down that pathway. So um, it wasn't a negative experience, but it also wasn't something like, "Ooh, that looks like a really cushy, fun job." I'm gonna, go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do that. Yeah, I don't know if this is just my experience, but I've I've always been really trepidatious about using any kind of science in sermons because I'm not a scientist, and I often I've heard other people who you know have long careers in the sciences say that those are the parts of the sermons they always cringe at the most. Like, oh, don't. Pastor, please don't try and make some kind of scientific claim if you don't actually know, you know, what it is you're talking about. Is that is that tough for you? Like, do you read or observe that in in other sermons? Like, is that something that you observe in the in the wider landscape? Like, what is kind of the the role that you see of like science in preaching? You know, I, I found science and in, in, in preaching um, as interesting as it is to me. It's not that interesting to my people. Um, <laughs> like they might think that they're interested in it, but like as soon as I, I get a little bit further into it, um, people, I wouldn't say get lost because they're not, it's just not as interesting. So I, I try to be careful with, with how much science I use. Yeah. Um, I, I have seen guys that uh, will use it and 
just like like any type of research or any type of study, picking and choosing what supports what they're trying to say. Right, right. And that's that's where it gets dangerous. Um, and yeah, I, I've had a couple cringe cringe worthy moments listening to another pastor quote something. And I'm like, <laughs> oh no, that's not actually what that means. But I'm sure everyone has that with any you know yeah. hermeneutical you know approach to a passage. Other pastors are going to cringe as well. So right. um, not, not any different. That's why I try to keep physics out of my sermons for the most part. But <laughs> sure. Yeah. I've, learned to keep, I've learned to keep them out. Stick to stories about my kids. That, that's much more relatable. Exactly. Exactly. So you've got a book out called The Great Challenge, Living a Love That Reconciles. We're going to talk much more about that uh, in the next segment. But I'm just curious, why would you write this book? What, you know, uh, um, where did this come from uh, that you said, you know what, this is the book that I want to write? Yeah, you, you know, it just came out of my pastoral ministry. So um, one of the things that God has just put on my heart over the last couple of years here is uh, breaking down denominational barriers, meeting with pastors uh, in my community that aren't the same denomination, um, grabbing lunch, having friendships, working together. Um, just this this call for Jesus has this prayer in John 17 that his followers would be one. And I've just been practically walking that out with other pastors and, and church leaders. And it's, it's led to some incredible meetings. I can tell you about later if, if you want. But um, at the end of the day, when I came back to my church body and, and started talking about unity in the body of Christ, a vast majority of people are like, yeah, we're excited about it. We think that's good. But, but it made a lot of other people nervous. Hmm. And I said, OK, let me take a step back. Let's talk about what produces unity which is love. And let's talk about Jesus' commands to love and how if we break that down, we're going to end up where, where I'm trying to lead it. So I was trying to, I, I got the cart before the, the horse. I said, here's the destination, but really the, the pathway is love. Loving each other as God has called us to love will produce the type of unity that I'd love to see in the body of Christ. So that, that's how I started it. Um, I just started with as a small group study um, with a couple of people in the church, and then it it evolved into a, a book, but primarily it was, it was for my church as a pastor. Classic physicist. I, 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 I was going. Uh, that other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Pastor Ryan Nunez, and we're going to ask him coming up next at the second segment here about his book, The Great Challenge. And it's particularly timeful for me. Timeful? Timely is what I want. <laughs> I speak for a living. Uh, we're actually in a week right now as a church that we're calling Unity Week, so I'm particularly interested in uh, some of what the book is about. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And uh, it's a bummer that topics like love and unity aren't relevant right now. But <laughs> we're going to talk about it anyway. And I mentioned before the break, actually, our church is in a week right now that we're calling uh, Unity Week. In fact, I led a, a devotional on Monday for our church on John 17. And uh, it's a topic it. that I th- I just think is so, it's evergreen anyway, but it's really timely now. So Brian had asked you a little bit about kind of the 30,000 foot perspective. I'd love to kind of get into the weeds a little. Like, why do you think this book right now is is so significant? Well, I, I think we get distracted by the, all the different messages of the world. Uh, we get distracted into, you know, opinions and politics and everything going on. And Jesus' commands to love one another really is the pathway for unity in the world around us. It's his commands are the pathway for unity in my marriage relationship and my family relationship and my church relationship in the community. And if we would simply follow Christ's commands to love, um, we would get there. But I say simply follow it. 
if it was that simple, we'd all do it, right? <laughs> and and so often we also just leave it a little generic, right? Like we're supposed to love one another. All right, well, could you tell me how? And that's really where the the book kind of comes in. What are some specific things you can do that are loving to the people around you? How can mm. we express Christ's commands specifically? I, I'm always about the specific, the, the call to action. Yeah. And that's where I think this comes into play and it is really beneficial right now. Yeah, and it's interesting. A lot of books you read, they, they don't take that step to the challenge, to the call to action. And clearly your book is very action oriented. Why did you uh, why was that important for you? Why is that the, the tact you took with this book of saying, hey, now let's take some time to try this out? I think the reason for it, because I wasn't thinking about a book. I wasn't thinking about a super broad audience. I was thinking about the people in my church. I was thinking about individuals, men and women uh, that I know and love and that I want to take a journey with. So that's that's I think when it starts personally, it gets more specific. I'm not going to leave a conversation with them. So just do better at loving others. I'm like, hey, let's try this this week. I I have uh, some some friends who are in the folklore movement and uh, which is a a Catholic uh, kind of um, uh, fraternity uh, movement there that is all about love and action and and their specific how they specifically challenge each other inspired me to to be a little bit more challenging with my church body hmm. you know we've uh we've had a buddy of mine on a couple of times his name is john armstrong and he led a ministry called act three that is now called the initiative and we hmm. actually did a lot of work with the focolare in fact they were sometimes a part of these ecumenical gatherings that we would have once a year at a local seminary where Catholic Protestant leaders from around the world would would just sort of sit often and just simply confess to one another like the ways that we've contributed to division and fracturing. And I, I remember sitting in those rooms thinking, gosh, I wish everyone could be a part of conversations like this because mm. you hop online and it's like, wow, it seems like everyone hates everyone. Like everyone's at everyone else's throat. Everyone's we couldn't be more different. We could be more divided. Like I, I'd love to know what are some of those practical ways and maybe even adapted for a pandemic like. I imagine some of what you had in mind with this book, you're like, I I couldn't have anticipated, you know, COVID-19. Like, what are some things that you would give listeners right now, like real practical handles for like, hey, here's some things. I don't want to give away the entire book, obviously, but like ways that they could go and live that out like right now in their families and their neighborhoods. Well, I think one of the the ones that really kind of came to light more than I I was anticipating during the season was um, Jesus' command to love those different than you. Uh, we think about the, the story of the Good Samaritan, this person that's uh, of a different racial, ethnic background, and to step outside of the people that we're comfortable being with, uh, the people we're normally with, and to demonstrate love to those 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 people. We have biases, all kinds of biases right. in, in life, right? Biases economically, socially, where we live, um, their opinions on the pandemic, like all of these different biases we have going on. And to just intentionally say, okay, I I have a bias against this person, so I'm actually going to have compassion on them. Uh, I'm going to seek out and intentionally find a way to demonstrate love to this person. I call it the the antidote. The antidote to bias is compassion. And it's it's a specific thing. Uh, Just quick story. Um, My wife uh, got stung by a scorpion. Like so, I live in Phoenix. It's desert. All kinds of you know gnarly creatures out here got stung with a scorpion and things start going bad arms getting numb you know she's not really bad hard time breathing but her throat's getting a little but my wife is also very frugal so she's like let's let's go to the emergency room like uh 
parking lot. Let's not go in yet because as soon as we go in, it's 200 bucks. So let's let's sit in the parking lot. And if it gets bad, we'll go in and I'll get the antidote. Um, so I, I, I agree. We, we go there. We're parked for a while. And all of a sudden, our eyes start spinning around like a cartoon character. Um, crazy stuff. So I took her in. They immediately gave her the antidote. And it, it worked against that problem. It worked against that venom. And these, these commands of Christ to love others, to overcome bias, the antidote to bias is compassion. When we are compassionate to that person, it removes the bias from us. Mm-hmm. And that can be, you know, like I said, that, that bias comes in so many different forms. Um, we have selfishness. You know, selfishness is one of the, the ways that cause division in the world around us between others. Well, generosity is the antidote to that. So instead of just leaving it at love, we talk about what does compassion look like? What is generosity's expression of love? So we're trying to get as specific as we can with these, these five challenges to love as Christ has called us to love. What is some of the feedback you're getting from uh, people in your church, outside your church, as they take some of these very practical challenges? You know, great, great feedback. We got, uh, we did it as a church, um, walked through it uh, a couple, uh, we just finished up a couple weeks ago and we put everyone, we call them challenge groups. So it's, it's essentially a small group, but it wasn't a whole lot of discussion. It was okay. Here's the challenge to go and love someone that I have a bias against. And then you come back the next week and you tell the story. Mm-hmm. And we've got dozens, hundreds of stories of people stepping out of their comfort zone and doing something very specific that week that, you know, in their mind, they'd always thought they'd get around to. But that that time frame, that intensity, that accountability uh, led to people to make some incredible decisions. And, uh, some of the, the greatest stories we come at the at the end of our series is we talk about forgiveness and just the power of forgiveness and some amazing things that took place there as well. I love that. I, I'm actually a little embarrassed to admit that I'm, I'm looking on the uh, the New City Press website for your book and you scroll down to the bottom and uh, there's a link to John Armstrong's book as well under <laughs> other products you might like. So I, you know, had I done that 10 seconds earlier, I would have no- I would have known that. But speaking of websites, though, as we're wrapping up, I, I'd love for people to not only know where to go to get the book, but maybe to get in contact with you and other things you're doing as far as speaking or writing. So go, go ahead and just hit us with all the websites, email addresses, handles, and all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, probably one of the easiest things is on Facebook. Um, you can go to uh, our Palm Valley Church Facebook page. Um, I've got a Ryan Nunez Facebook page as well. Um, and uh, on Instagram, it's rnunez underscore PVC. Um, and then kind of a central place for all of that is our church website, www.palmvalley.org. And if you actually hit the bas- backslash the great challenge, it'll take you to a page with a bunch of resources. You actually look at our small group curriculum and do the study, buy the book, do the study with a group of people that you know, and um, see what God does over the, the course of, of seven weeks it takes to go through the book. I love that, man. Our guest today has been Ryan Nunez. He is both a pastor and the author of a book called The Great Challenge. And uh, if you're just joining us via the radio, highly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you guys so much. This has been a blast. Our pleasure, man. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. Um, one of the things that I feel like you and I end up coming back to a lot is this idea of polarization. And, mm-hmm. and obviously, you know, we're not sociologists, we're not mathematicians, we, we're not experts in social media, but just sort of as pastors and people, it's something that I feel like most people have observed to some degree. Like, wow, we, we just seem 
more polarized than usual. And I, I found this article from the Wall Street Journal. It says, why social media is so good at polarizing us. And then here's the description. Mathematicians are teaming up with political scientists to create models of how social media divides us. And results suggest at least one popular solution might actually make the problem worse. So that's interesting. This is by mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Mims. Do you want to kind of give us a uh, 30,000 foot perspective here? Yeah, like you said, they said a growing body of research suggests that social media is accelerating the trend of polarization. So it's not causing us necessarily right. to be polarized. It's like gasoline on the fire. It's an accelerant. Uh, and it's not clear how to solve the problem, they say. And new research suggests that the often proposed solution of exposing users on the platforms to more content from the other side. So that's the solution many people have talked about. Get out of your echo chamber, right? Look mm-hmm. at other stuff. They said that might actually be making things worse because of how social media amplifies extreme opinions. And so much longer article. We're going to listen to some of the stuff here in a second. But I find that fascinating because you and I have said this. Hey, one Uh of the ways to break free of this polarization is to get out of your echo chamber, which I still believe to be true. But they're saying specifically on social media that they're going to instead... um, it's going to make things worse because they're going to amplify these extreme opinions. Uh, I, I find that really fascinating because this goes against a lot of what we've even said. Well, and I, I want to listen into a, a brief part here because I feel like polarization, polarizing, it's a word that you and I have actually used a lot on this show in the year and a half, almost two years that we've had the show. And one of the things the article says is a challenge of studying polarization is actually defining polarization. Take a listen. Mm-hmm. There are different kinds. One known as effective polarization measures how much people of one party dislike members of the opposite party. Various measures of effective polarization have shown that over the past 60 years, it's gotten much worse. Another kind known as ideological polarization measures how far apart members of each party are on all issues such as abortion and gun control. This kind of polarization has, contrary to what you might think, remained relatively stable over time. In other words, many Americans hate each other more than ever, but they don't disagree with each other any more than they used to. Taken as a whole, the literature on whether social media polarizes us is inconclusive, says Dr. Bale, a fact that Facebook itself has highlighted in its past responses to the Wall Street Journal coverage of each tech giant's role in dividing America. Part of the reason it's so difficult to isolate any one influence on the polarization of Americans, he adds, is that there are so many from geographic self-sorting to long-term changes in the way political parties organize themselves. Okay, so I don't know about you, but that there was some new information for me there that I had I honestly hadn't really considered. What what do you what do you do with that information? It it is again, it it reminds us that it's just not so black and white, like too much social media, you're going to be polarized and get off social media, not be polarized, that there's different kinds of things uh, like that whole thing about affective polarization, uh, measuring how much one party dislikes members of an opposite party. Like the fact that they can measure this is is fascinating to me. Maybe it shouldn't be because we can measure everything these days. But, uh, you know, for me, uh, it's just. Um. Yeah, it's it's just that these aren't measurable things. They're just things that we feel, and and the fact that they're measuring them, I find really fascinating. Yeah, and I, it's interesting too because, like you were saying, feels like in the past part of the solutions that I've often heard proposed are to say, "Oh, change the algorithms of what we're you know if we're if someone is making decisions." And this is a lot of the uh, the premise behind the social dilemma, which 
now would be a good time, I guess, to ask. Have you watched it yet? Is that- not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> maybe during maybe during the Giants game. Is that? Yes. <laughs> it depends how bad the game's going tonight. <laughs> right. Well, and, and he was saying that sometimes you know, that's often what's been um, proposed as a solution is to kind of break out of these, you know, quote, filter bubbles. But it goes on to say, according to David Saban Miller and Daniel Abrams, creators of this latest model, Exposing us to viewpoints different from our own in whatever medium we encounter that might actually be part of the problem. The reason is probably intuitive for anyone who has the misfortune to spend an unhealthy amount of time on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or even cable news. Because social media and balkanized TV networks tend to highlight content with the biggest emotional punch, that is, they operate on the principle that if it's outrageous, it's contagious. And we're exposed to a different, uh, a differing view. It often takes an extreme form, one that seems personally noxious. So I think I think what they're saying in layman's term is if we change these algorithms uh, and we're being exposed to what would sort of be categorized as a quote unquote opposing viewpoint, it's probably going to be like the far end of the spectrum opposing viewpoint, yes. which most humans will be pretty unlikely to like give it a fair shake because it's going to feel so opposite, so polar. I guess that's where the phrase comes from to like who we are. They're not. There's not a lot of incentive for like presenting moderate, centrist, yes. even-handed information as as we've seen. And the the idea that we are captains of our own social media ship, I think, is becoming more obvious. That's just not the case. Yeah, exactly. And that's just what uh, you know. When I watch the social dilemma, I know this is part of it, but it's <laughs> it, it's again the reminder that that Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever else are not these neutral parties, right? These neutral platforms where we're just getting, oh, I want to I want to look at the other side, and I'm getting it completely unfiltered, and just as no that that they want you outraged, right? And yeah. and they want you um, go coming back and and kind of going, see, I'm right. Uh, what I always believed is right. Uh, I, Again, I don't realize that I tend to be naive with this things, man, these things, man. Like when I get on Facebook or Twitter, I'm like, oh, it's just the news. Yo, here it is. There's right. not some more nefarious thing going on. But here the Wall Street Journal is reminding us that even when you're trying to do the good thing of getting out of your echo chamber and reading the other side, uh, that's going to pour gasoline on the fire because they're not going to give you an accurate view. <laughs> it's it's yet another reason to go, man, I can't I can't trust what I'm getting on social media. And I've got to just really think this through some more. Well, and, and part of what they're proposing here is that what they call repulsion is actually an even stronger sense or motivator than like attraction to your own viewpoints, which wow. that, that could be a whole that could be a whole yeah. sermon almost like we feel more strongly when repulsed by something we disagree with then we feel attracted to something we do agree with. So that's part of what Hmm. the case they're making here is that, oh man, to just dump on us then, and maybe that's not the right word picture, but the far extreme opposing perspective opinion or platform that we're, you know, aligned with quote unquote, will likely trigger slash reinforce whatever repulsion is already there in turn, kind of creating an, an even wider divide. So, again, I, I I don't know what this to me. This is going to sound really simplistic. To me, in some ways, the solution has always been the same in my mind. Just have conversations with people. Like, yes, the the, yes. the more that we're like relying on social media to course correct or to level itself off, I'm like, no, 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 no. I honestly think, and they, maybe this is really elementary and super naive of me. I think if we had more cups of coffee with people who disagree with us, mm-hmm. or vote differently, or look differently, or act differently. Just to to me, I think that 
that stands a much better chance of actually leading us towards something that resembles health than like switch the algorithms, which, you know, maybe that'll help either way. I I couldn't agree more. Social media is a controversial topic. And ironically, we're going to post this article on our Facebook page. (laughs) 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 The the humor is not lost on us, but as always, we would love to hear from you guys. That's over on our Facebook page, the common good radio show. The first hour is in the books, but we have some real antics prepared for you in the second hour. You're not going to miss it. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Christians in politics, the art of disagreement, a word from John Piper, and we're joined by Sam Harrell. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good, where part two is as average as part one is. No? <laughs> no, it's going to be great. <laughs> it's going to be, that's what I, well, yeah, our, I meant that our average is no. exceptional. That's obviously the <laughs> subtext. Okay, I'm, I was going- <laughs> I'm on board now. <laughs> You're on board. You, uh, any chance you want to guess what holidays are today? No? Oh, it is beautiful out here today. Every time you ask me this, I tell you it's National S'mores Day. Is that today? Yeah, I feel like I need to buy you like a s'mores kit or I just something. Wanted like to be, one of these days has to be National S'mores Day, right? I don't even know that there is such a thing. Don't look it up. I'd rather not know. I'd rather it be a surprise. That'd be fun. Um, you'll be happy to know it's National Make a Dog's Day Day. Oh, okay. National Color Day. And National Nut Day. So not sure what to make of any of that, nor does that make for good radio. Either way. Uh, what do I need to tell you? A couple of things. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. I encourage you to find us on any platform that you can. Rate and review us. Share it with a friend. All of that helps us out a bunch. And it has been a very weird journey this year just to have a show in the midst of a pandemic. But we've heard from a number of you just about how helpful the content has been or challenging or encouraging. And that's kind of our heartbeat behind the show. So in any way, shape or form, we would love to hear from you. I saw this floating around. This is from Tish Harrison Warren from today at ChristianityToday.com. And uh, here's a headline that might already rile some people up. It says, the early church saw itself as a political body. We can too. Subheading is a Christian vision of the public square starts with being a different kind of people. Do you want to get us into this? I will. Uh, Let's let's do do this. In the days after the 2016 election, one statistic became the story, the notorious 81%. Though this data has been debated and reasons behind it are murky, it's clear that a vast, vast majority of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Cards on the table, I think this is one of the most damaging events for the mission of the church in the last few decades. In his article, Young Evangelicals Are Defying Their Elders' Politics, Kyle Mayard Schapp writes, because no political party can completely capture the fullness of the values an evangelical was taught, her community's embrace of partisan politics creates in her dissonance and disillusionment. Uh, I bear witness to this disillusionment daily, she writes. I regularly hear from younger Christians wondering aloud how the good news of Jesus can be true if the church is marred by racism, injustice, partisanship, and pettiness. Many of us who work among these disillusioned young people find ourselves holding our breath till November. We are anxious to see if this election shows a more complex and less partisan engagement among evangelicals, one that better reflects a surprising group of people 
who love the weak, care for creation, honor life from conception to death, attend to justice, and seek the welfare of our neighbors. But as important as this election is, focusing on it alone is foolish. So she has laid out a very strong uh, argument there about uh, this election and the disillusionment and the disillusionment, particularly people feel about kind of uh, white evangelicals being this uh, homogeneous voting block, right? Uh, and and we're going to get into a really interesting article later this hour from John Piper today that is being shared by a lot of people that I think gets at this a little bit as well. But she's laid out here, don't you think, a lot of the dissonance we hear from people, young and old, as mm-hmm. that whole number 81% gets thrown around. Yeah, and I, I'm debating how much of this I just straight up read, to be honest, because I, I think it's I think it's really good. I mean, it mentions, you know, focusing on it alone is foolish, which I imagine some people are like, well, what, what, what should we focus on then? What, like, what are we supposed to do? But if you wouldn't mind, I'm just going to, I'm going to read a little more. She says, we have an impoverished and inadequate political theology. It took us generations to get here. And this one election, regardless of the results, will not undo that. So before we know who wins or loses, we as a church must begin to reexamine how the good news of Jesus shapes us politically. That's a great challenge, by the way. The early church aids us in this task. Early Christians used the word ecclesia, a term used for the assembly governing Greek city-states to describe their own gatherings. This terminology highlights how the early church understood itself as a political body. But this strange new Christian assembly proclaimed that they were citizens of a different kingdom with a different king. It wasn't just a pious idea. It shaped them into a people who, in the words of Peter Lightheart's, embodied an unprecedented social and political form that burst the bonds of all prior political categories. In uh, one third century text, an early Christian describes followers of Jesus as those who, quote, dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners, as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. I want that framed like above my desk (laughs) to be a political alternative. We like the early church must uh, confuse calcified cultural categories. Those early Christians were cultural misfits, radically pro-life, sexually chaste, committed to the poor and marginalized and devoted to racial and ethnic justice and reconciliation. We are called to the same. These convictions don't place us neatly in one political party, but our current emaciated political theology has formed us into what Tim Keller calls red evangelicals or blue evangelicals who ignore or denigrate parts of the scripture and tradition that don't fit into our prior partisan commitments. I don't know, Brian, have you seen any of that happening in your own sphere of influence? (laughs) I'm guessing by your laughter, that's accurate. (laughs) Absolutely. This whole red evangelical or blue evangelicals uh, who just we we pick and choose. Oh, well, we're this. And look, the Bible says this. And and my my team's platform says this. And you're like, Uh hey, uh, but look over there. Look at that verse over there. And uh, that doesn't fit as well. And people get really mad when you bring these things up because we get so tribal and you're against my team. Yes, absolutely. This is true. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal some time from another segment because I, w- I want to just read the rest because I think Go it's so it. good. Yet the reconstruction of a Christian vision of politics is more comprehensive than merely holding nonpartisan political views. That 
I think is a really brilliant distinction. A robustly Christian political theology requires that Christians become a different kind of people whose lives bear witness to Jesus in ways that the world finds astonishing, perplexing, and unrecognizable. In order to begin this work, we need posture and practice. We need postures of humility, truthfulness, joy, kindness, and love for our enemies, postures profoundly lacking on both sides of the aisle. The deepest divide in American politics is not between right or left, but between those who are committed to these postures in word and deed and those who are not. We form these postures through practices. To be of any use to the world in these times, wrote Andy Crouch shortly after the 2016 election, we have to practice the spiritual disciplines that make us different from the world. This is a lot of what Rich Velotis was talking about a yes. couple of weeks ago. Regardless of who is elected next month, today we can begin the slow work of reforming Christian politics by taking up practices of solitude, silence, fasting, and prayer. These are not pious acts of quietude. They are inherently political acts that form us into a people who, in Crouch's words, might be of some use to the world. The church's task, then, is to begin the baby steps of relearning how to be an alternative polis, a different kind of community that embodies a different kind of politics. Drawing from the early church and from the scriptures, we can reconstruct a truer, more faithful, and more beautiful political theology from the ground up. This work of reconstruction will take decades, so we'd better get going. The state of the church's mission in America will be determined less by what happens in this one election and more by who we become over the coming decades. I know we're already pretty much out of time, Brian, but any any thoughts to what she wrote here? I I just really resonate with what she says. I think it's more than this election. It's just the last part of what you read there that I think is uh, so important and challenging that it's not about this one election. This one election is important, right? It's right. not about this one election and about who we're becoming over the coming decades. It's like this, hey, we've got to learn from what's going on currently, make the changes needed, and then just start the process of changing. That's going to take decades and generations, mm -hmm. but it's a worthwhile task to begin now because so much of what we read is like, it's all about this election and what are Christians going to do in this? And she's like, no. It's it's yes about this election, but it's more than that. And I think that is that is spot on, in my opinion. And it's all, you know, we mentioned the phrase from Eugene Peterson, a lot of long obedience in the same direction who, yeah. you know, he elsewhere wrote, don't plant seeds tonight expecting potatoes tomorrow. Like th this is going to be some kind of long haul that uh, I would I just love her call to that and the reminder that it's going to be long, arduous, slow work. But I think what what a call. And again, I know that anytime the word politics even shows up, it's potentially polarizing. So this is up on our Facebook page. And uh, we, of course, as always, would love to know what you think. Coming up next, Sam Harrell wrote an article that we actually referenced earlier in the week. He's going to join us right here live on the Common Good. That's coming up next on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And uh, we're thrilled to have Sam Harrell, who wrote an article that we actually referenced earlier in this week. And we're going to kind of take a deeper dive into that. But first, Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate being invited. Mm -hmm. hey, it's our pleasure. W would you just take a minute or two and introduce yourself to our Common Good audience? Absolutely. Um, I am currently the Associate Coordinator for Global Missions with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship out of Atlanta, and my responsibilities are for our field personnel around the world. Um, before that, though, I, I hail from Kenya. I was born the product mm -hmm. of missionary parents, and so was my wife. Uh, they say it was an arranged marriage, uh, <laughs> but uh, I've lived 
pretty much all of my life other than university and seminary in, in the nation of Kenya. And so my perspective is shaped a lot by working in communities um, there uh, and appreciating the, the wisdom of, of common folk and learning as much or more than I was able to convey. Um, mm. So that's my sort of perspective. I, I'm very in, uh, enthused about the natural world. Uh, it was very close to me growing up, and um, I get a lot of energy out of uh, appreciating the creation that we have been bestowed by God and uh, look to see how, if there's any way that I can do my part to celebrate that, I, I'd try. Yeah, Sam, uh, we really enjoyed discussing your article the other day. It's up on our Facebook page. I uh, I would love to start uh, in, in this concept of more. In your article, you say we're killing ourselves and others for more. Uh, and you talk about that, especially here in the West. Could you expound on that concept and that idea that we're killing ourselves and others for more? Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I have to say, I, I wrote this article uh, in the middle of this political season that we we have, and I was trying to look underneath some of the the steam that we see being vented. And and in my opinion, um, whether you're from the right or from the left, and I understand and accept and appreciate the various positions, but um, uh, neither side really offers an, an antidote to our unlimited appetites. Um, hmm. In my view, as long as uh, modern economies are based on, base their health on, you know, um, gross national product, <laughs> hmm. uh, there's only limit, there are limits to that. Uh, the, the earth is, what sustains us in the sense of material. And if we're continuing our extraction project without taking into account limits to growth or how our appetites affect the appetites of others around the world, um, mm. we're, we're in a common uh, soup, if you will. Right. Um, it's, it's not one that either side, I believe, has articulated a good answer to. Um, I would say that I'm very sympathetic with a, a green economy and, and clean energy and all of that. But that doesn't mean that we then have endless appetites for energy. Right. Um, even a green energy source costs money. Um, mm -hmm. And even a green energy grid is still used for extraction. And until we can kind of balance those appetites, uh, I feel like we're, we're heading to a, a wall. Um, and I, I realize that no president gets elected by telling uh, his or her people, um, you've got to do with less and actually more is not our goal. But that's <laughs> the answer. That's that's what we need to hear, frankly. Yeah. One of the things you write about is sort of the juxtaposition of power grabs versus the common good. And you, you maybe noticed uh, the name of a particular radio show <laughs> by the same name. And I, I promise I'm not just fishing for a soundbite here, but I, I'd love to know how you define the common good, maybe even particularly from a, a Christian perspective. That's a lot of where the name came for us even was hearing a number of theologians kind of propose the notion of Christians for the common good. How, how do you, how do you define that, that phrase? And what does that, what does that actually look like practically? Well, from a faith perspective, um, I'm always intrigued that really the message that was given to us by Jesus was that essentially our health um, is derived from how it is that we treat the least of these. And so um, treating the least of these one way or the other 
I suppose, presupposes that we have everyone's welfare in mind. Um, a common good. And um, in terms of, you know, our, our treatment of the environment and so forth, um, we, we can't ignore the fact that the, the answer to our predicament of sharing resources equitably, and, and I say that very carefully, equitably, um, mm. according to what we all need, um, that can't be done if our solution is that everyone needs to move up to our standard of living. That, that, that might be a, a great concept, but as I've mentioned in the article, that takes 4.6 Earths. Mm. Mm. It can't happen. And so somebody will need to step down in order for the common good to be achieved. Mm-hmm. It's not technology will help us no, without a doubt. We'll do things more efficiently and whatever, but you can't keep adding billions to, to our numbers and, and also increase living uh, and consumption patterns as we know them now. So in my opinion, the rest of the world offers us some answers that we don't have mm-hmm. um, how to live uh with with the community in mind, and I mean that community with a big C, not just my neighborhood or not just my right. nation. So to me, the greatness of our nation, which you hear touted often, we're the greatest nation on earth. Well, that depends. Mm. Um, you know, I, I know a lot of other places that uh, live a lot less impactfully and leave a lot more for others. Um, and to me, and according to how I read scripture and understand our faith, that has to do with the common good. Mm-hmm. When you speak of the environment or when you speak of leaving some for others and and kind of goes against what a lot of us have, have grown up on right here in the West, I'm wondering, uh, what do you, what do you what kind of feedback do you get from especially other Christians? What kind of feedback from church and Christians do you receive for this kind of message? Well, I, I belong to a wonderful group that um, has a lot of folks that are very uh, socially conscious um, and and believe that their their evangelism includes um, both word and deed, and um, sometimes, unfortunately, in in a lot of circles, this can degenerate into you know how you use certain catchphrases and how you tout things on Facebook or whatever, versus how you actually live. And and I, I find where the the rubber meets the road is where we actually. Um, weigh our particular lifestyles against our ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for instance, I, I had a discussion today with uh, somebody in our, our benefits board, a wonderful, you know, the intent is to care for people in retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, is my goal to make as much money as I can for retirement, um, no matter what it is I'm investing in? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so my, my question to my colleague was, hey, I need to make sure that the things that my money is invested in that are earning me more money for the future are not part of the problem. Hmm. Um, because without a doubt, um, some of the, the funds and so forth, they'll make you great money, but they're, they're contributing to the problem of humanity. And they're, they're taking money out of the mouths of babes. I mean, food out of the mouths of babes, if you will. Hmm. Uh, and so maybe uh, I need to have enough versus more. Uh, I need to invest in some things that won't make me the most money, but they're the right things. And so I think maybe that's sort of where I'm trying to lead. Mm -hmm. 
Sam, I'm so grateful for your perspective and your heart. I'd love just as we wrap up here, where can people go to learn more? You can hit us with websites or Twitter handles or, or any way that people could to you know contact you or get in contact with the kind of work that you're doing. Absolutely. Well, cbf.net is the organization that I belong to that does great work around the world of 43 countries, uh, of 20 countries and 63 field personnel around the world. And, wow. and uh, my wife and I, Melody, we founded an organization called Africa Exchange to do the, the work that we did in East Africa under CBF. And that organization is a community development organization that continues to this day and tries to solve some of these problems that I'm I'm sort of poking at. That's great. That voice you're hearing, by the way, is Sam Harrell. He is the Associate Coordinator of Global Missions for the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, sir. My pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Um, we're going to do something a little different in this next segment. There's an article on Desiring God written by John Piper that everyone, at least in Brian and I's small corner of the universe, seems to be talking about, retweeting, sharing, discussing. It's called Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin. So, so rather than us kind of like pick and choose various parts of this article, Brian's yeah. going to read the entire thing in its entirety, and then we'll respond with whatever time is left. Yeah, and this is like a bomb because John Piper is uh, he's that polarizing, but also uh, he tends to be a favorite of people who are very conservative. And mm-hmm. so he him speaking on the election uh, is fascinating. So let's read it, because as Ian said, this is flying around. So Christian social media today, mm-hmm. this article he writes is probably as close as you'll get to an answer on how I will vote in the presidential election. Probably. Right. Only God knows what may happen in the next days. Nothing I say here is intended to dictate how anyone else should vote, but rather to point to a perspective that seems to be neglected. Yes, this perspective sways my vote, but you need not be sinning if you weigh matters differently. Actually, this is a long overdue article attempting to explain why I remain baffled that so many Christians consider the sins of unrepentant sexual immorality, unrepentant boastfulness, unrepentant vulgarity, unrepented uh, factiousness and the like to to be only toxic for our nation, while policies that endorse baby killing, sex switching, freedom lifting and socialistic overreach are viewed as deadly. Uh, The reason he before used the Greek words as well, I just didn't have the guts to read them. The reason I put those Greek words in parentheses is to give a graphic reminder that these are sins mentioned in the New Testament. To be more specific, they are sins that destroy people. They are not just deadly. They are deadly forever. They lead to eternal destruction. They destroy persons, and through persons, they destroy nations. Forgiveness through Jesus is always possible where there is repentance. But where humble repentance is absent, the sins condemn. The New Testament teaches those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. To which you say, so what? Rejecting Jesus as Lord also leads to death. But you are willing to vote for a non-Christian, aren't you? I am, assuming there is enough overlap between biblical uprightness and the visible outworking of his character and convictions. My point so far is simply to raise the stakes of what is outwardly modeled in leadership so that Christians are given pause. It's not a small thing to treat lightly a pattern of public behaviors that lead to death. In fact, I think it's a drastic mistake to think that the deadly influences of a leader can only through his policies and not also through his person. 
Uh, this is true not only because flagrant boastfulness, vulgarity, immorality, and factiousness are self-incriminating, but also because they are nation-corrupting. They move out from centers of influence to infect who, whole cultures. The last five years bear vivid witness to this infection at almost every level of society. This truth is not uniquely Christian. The little leaven uh, leavens the whole lump and bad company ruins good moral. There is a character connection between rulers and subjects. When the Bible describes a king by saying he sinned and made Israel to sin, it doesn't mean he twisted their arm. It means his influence shaped the people. That's the calling of a leader. Hmm. Take the lead in giving shape to the character of your people so it happens for good or for ill. It's not baffling then that so many Christians seem to be sure that they are saving human lives and freedoms by treating as minimal the destructive effects of the spreading gangrene of high-profile, high-handed, culture-shaping sin. This point has a special relevance for Christians. Freedom and life are precious. We all want to live and be free to pursue happiness. But if our freedoms are threatened or taken, the essence of our identity in Christ, the, the certainty of our everlasting joy with Jesus, and the holiness and love for which we have been saved by Christ, none of these is lost with the loss of life or freedom. Therefore, Christian communi Christians communicate a falsehood to non-believers when we act as if policies and laws that protect life and freedom are more precious than being a certain kind of person. Hmm. The church is paying dearly and will continue to pay for our communicating this falsehood year after year. The justifications for ranking the destructive effects of persons below the destructive effects of policies ring hollow. I find it bewildering that Christians can be so sure that greater damp damage will be done by bad judges, bad laws, and bad policies than is being done by the culture-infecting spread of the gangrene of sinful self-exaltation self and boasting and strife-stirring. How do they know this? Seriously, where do they get the sure knowledge that judges, laws, and policies are less destructive than boast, uh, boastful factiousness in high places? But what about abortion? Where does the wickedness of defending child killing come from? It comes from hearts of self-absorbed arrogance and boasting. It comes from hearts that are insubordinate to God. In other words, it comes from the very character that so many Christian leaders are treating as comparatively innocuous because they think Roe and SCOTUS and Planned Parenthood are more pivotal, more decisive battlegrounds. I think Roe is an evil decision. I think Planned Parenthood is a code name for baby killing and ethnic cleansing. And I think it's baffling and presumptuous to assume that pro-abortion policies kill more people than a culture-saturating pro-self-pride. When a leader models self-absorbed, self-exalting boastfulness, he models the most deadly behavior in the world. He points his nation to destruction destruction of more kinds than we can imagine. It's naive to think that a man can be effectively pro-life and manifest consistently the character traits that lead to death, temporal and eternal. May I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses first by anarchy, then tyranny from the right or the left. Imagine religious freedoms is gone. And then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Christians who act like the believers in Hebrews 10, you joyfully accept the plundering of your property. 
Uh, have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Have you shown them that they are sojourners and exiles and that their citizenship is in heaven? Or have you neglected these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention onto the strategies of politics? Have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is saving America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without America? Where does that leave me as I face a civic duty on November the 3rd? Here's my answer. I do not require anyone to follow me, not my wife, not my friends, not my colleagues. I will not develop some calculus which path of destruction I will support. That's not my duty. My calling is to lead people to see Jesus Christ, trust his forgiveness, uh, treasure him above everything in this life, uh, treasure him above everything in this world, live in a way that shows his all satisfying value and help them make it to heaven with love and holiness. That calling is contradicted by supporting either pathway to cultural corruption and eternal ruin. You may believe that there are kinds of support for such pathways that do not involve such a contradiction. Such an undermining of authentic Christian witness. You must act what you see. I can't see it. That's why I said my way need not be yours. When I consider the remote possibility that I might do any good by endorsing the devastation already evident in the two choices before me, I am loath to undermine my calling to stand for Christ-exalting faith and hope and love. I will be asked to give an account of my devotion to this life-giving calling. The world will ask. The Lord of heaven will ask. And my conscience will ask, what will I say? With a cheerful smile, I will explain to my unbelieving neighbor why my allegiance to Jesus set me at odds with death, death by abortion and death by arrogance. I will take him to Romans 1 and Psalm 139. And if he's willing, I will show him how abortion and arrogance can be forgiven because of Christ. And I will invite him to become an exile, to have a kingdom that will never be shaken not even when America is a footnote in the archives of the new creation. That's really long. That's John Piper. But Ian, I've got to say, I read that three different times today mm. and uh, found that to be so compelling. And to be honest with you, a lot of what I'm feeling right now. And I, I imagine some people will agree with you, Brian. Other yeah. people may be outraged and maybe others still sort of caught somewhere in between. So I realize that's probably the reality for a lot of us. That, as always, is up at our Facebook page. And we would love for maybe this particular discussion not to end here and today. We'd love to see your comments over there. And uh, maybe later next week, Brian and I will kind of unpack this a little bit further. But we want to just kind of share it with you because so many people seem to be resonating with it in some way, shape or form today. And uh, we thought it was good for us to interact with it there. Coming up next, though, Brian, here's something that I think we've talked about a lot, even just today. How to master the art of disagreement in the church and on social media. That's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good for the last time today. Fret not, though. At least one of the two of us will be back again tomorrow. Brian, which one of us do you think will return for the show tomorrow? Man, I hope you're there. <laughs> yes, I'll be off tomorrow, enjoying a day off. So, uh, yeah, I it, the show is in good hands, which I'm thankful for. I, it will be a great show tomorrow. But I will not be here. I will see everybody on Monday. We're going to play a lot of music in minor keys. I'll be quietly <laughs> sobbing throughout the entire show just to make it uh, extra somber. But, yeah, we will miss you, and you'll be back again on Monday, right? Is that a, right. a promise? On Monday, by the way, you will have now viewed... 
a certain documentary that it's the goal. We'll be it's confident <laughs> discussing at some point. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed. And uh, we're going to end with a, an article out of uh, the Gospel Coalition by Bobby Jameson. It's a topic that I, is sort of evergreen, but I feel like I'm almost committed to doing a story like this once a yeah. day between now and the election, just because I, I think it's it's just going to become increasingly important. The article's uh, a couple weeks old, but it's called How to Master the Art of Disagreement in the Church and on social media. This is something that I think, again, I think we always need, but it feels like, and I don't know if you've had this experience, a couple of times a month, I feel like I'm baffled by watching an interaction online between people that I like deeply love and deeply respect, often like leaders. Where I'm like, why are you doing that here? Like that just seems like a lose-lose situation. It just feels like, and again, you know, you and I are both guilty of this ourselves, both I'm sure privately and publicly, but either way, how we actually disagree well, I think is just a really important conversation right now. So uh, do you want to get us into it? Yeah. And if it's a gospel coalition, it's a list. Uh, (laughs) It's giving us eight things to consider uh, when we ask these questions. How should you conduct yourself in this conversation? What should you be weighing before, during and after? And I'm like you, man, I just can't, I'm surprised almost daily by something that happens on social media or seeing how somebody is reacting to somebody else. And so I think this is timely. The number one question uh, that the author talks about is how important is the issue? A lot of this is like what John Acuff, the article we did yesterday, Uh how important is the issue? Uh, Ask yourself, how important is it relative to the gospel in the way I communicate about this third tier issue? Am I leaving daylight between its importance and the gospel's importance? Am I speaking about this matter in a way that makes it plain to everyone that I know the gospel is more important? So as we uh, have these conversations with people either in person or online, a, a fundamental first question is how important is this issue? This other one's tricky, obviously. Number two, how sure am I of my position, which, you know. If you've hopped on social media as of late, it feels like everyone's airtight, confident in every position. (laughs) But how confident are you that you're right? What evidence is your judgment based on? How much of that evidence is in the Bible and how much of it is outside the Bible? How comprehensive is your assessment of the evidence? How many people who have studied the evidence as much or more than you have reached the opposite conclusion? Are you as confident in your position on, say, single issue voting as you are of the doctrine of the Trinity? Are you as confident in your stance on the U.S. foreign policy as you are in justification by faith alone? Are you as confident about the necessary means for righting racial injustices as you are about the exclusivity of Christ? The first step is recognizing you likely do have differing levels of certainty about different convictions you hold. Some are more likely to be proved wrong than others. And you're more likely to change your mind about some than about others. Again, how you speak about those more disputable issues should make it plain that you're less certain of your stance on them than you are of the good news of Christ. Yeah, really uh, important one. Number three, can reasonable Christians disagree? Oh, snap. Asking this helps lower the stakes. It means we can recognize each other not only as brothers and sisters, but as brothers and sisters with properly functioning rational faculties, Mm. even if at the end of the conversation we still disagree. Talk about second level, third level issues since we need to agree about. So there are some things his point is we do need to agree about, yeah, uh, right. but oftentimes we tear each other apart on the things where if we're honest, you could agree to disagree and still be f- firmly in community with one another. Yeah. And I'm realizing now we, uh, we may run out of time on this one, but four is, is one that I hear a lot about. Can we disagree and be members of the same church? Christians need to agree on two things to form a church gospel doctrine and gospel polity. 
I kind of want to ask if you agree with that, Brian, but I will keep going. Nearly every part of a healthy statement of faith will fit pretty well into one of those two categories. Similarly, a useful church covenant should distill essential ethical obligations to Christ and one another. Why does this matter? Because any unrepentant sin or unrepentant theological error for which a church would in principle remove a member should be traceable, at least by implication, to the violation of something in its statement of faith and church covenant. Beyond those two categories lie vast mountain ranges of theological positions, political convictions, practical preferences, and much more. So what can you disagree about and still remain members of the same church? The more items you're able to place in that category, the easier it is to promote and preserve unity. That's a that's a good one. Number five, am I prizing the argument above the person? Ooh. To win the argument but lose the person is easy. It also torpedoes unity. To do so is to lose far more than you think you've gained. They write a lot more here, but am I prizing the argument even above the person that I'm arguing with? That is like social media in a nutshell right yeah, there. No kidding. I think it's Andy Stanley or somebody said, never make a point at the expense of making a difference. I think that, mm-hmm. that's like I want to tattoo that in reverse on my forehead. Uh, number six, am I prizing the issue above the unity of the church? Sometimes a silence a silence? Sometimes a silence is eloquent or even deafening. Sherlock Holmes famously noticed the dog that didn't bark. If the dog didn't bark, it must have known the person who crept through the yard in the middle of the night. And so the mystery was solved. I think Romans 14 and 15 <laughs> contain one of the most eloquent silences in all of Scripture. What does it profit a man to score all the, the rhetorical points in the world, but estrange his brother's soul? And what will a woman give in exchange for her sister's diminished affection? I, I think, again... Romans is thick, but Romans 14 and 15, those would be good chapters to ruminate on, especially in the coming weeks, I think. Yeah. Number seven, uh, is this the right time and place for this uh, conversation? Mm -hmm. He says here we'll focus on just one application, social media. Uh, He says, consider Ephesians four. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may grace I may give grace to those who hear. This is a one sentence summary of biblical communication. Hmm. It teaches us to say the right words in the right way at the right time for the right reason. He goes on to say social media has an online disin disinnovation effect. Social media lacks gradients of intimacy. Social media is full of unknown unknowns and, and so on and so forth. And so. Uh, yeah, that's it. That's an interesting one. I think this is a great list. Go and uh, finish us off with number eight. Number eight. How can I disagree in such a way that we leave more unified, not less? And says, are you a delight to disagree with? That might sound like an oxymoron, but I can think of more than one person I know well whom it is a positive pleasure to disagree with. Why? Because they are so gentle and gracious, so charitable and kind that the disagreement only showcases the depth of their love for you and the depth of their commitment to Christ, to the Christ that we both confess. And it goes on to quote C.S. Lewis, whom we often reference on the show. And the sort of the prayer at the end of this is, may God teach us this art. Again, I highly encourage you to check out the entire thing mm-hmm. over on the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And to, uh, to wrap us up, Brian, I'm going to play a, a brief audio clip from uh, Chris Peterson and Spencer Cox, both candidates of Utah governor. And I don't know anything about their faith background or their doctrine, but for me, it's sort of this week's example of what it looks like to disagree graciously. And uh, that's how we're going to wrap up the show. We will miss you tomorrow, though, Brian. Thank you. Have a great Friday off. And thank you all for joining us here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I'm Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. We are currently in the final days of campaigning against each other to be your next governor. And while I think you should vote for me. Yeah, but really, you should vote for me. There are some things we both agree on. 
We can debate issues without degrading each other's character. We can disagree without hating each other. And win or lose in Utah, we work together. So let's show the country that there's a better way. My name's Chris Peterson. And I'm Spencer Cox. And we, we approve, approve this message. message.